You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 10. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. We're in Book 2, first five chapters of Book 2, The Need for the Redeemer. Book 2 is about knowledge of the Redeemer, God the Redeemer in Christ, as Calvin expresses it. And for five chapters, he sets forth why we need a Redeemer. And then for six chapters, he tells us that Christ the Redeemer is the theme of the whole Bible. Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And then uh, today we get into the discussion that Calvin presents on the person of Christ and then next time on the work of Christ. So we're in lesson 10, person of Christ, book 2, chapters 12 through 14. Let's join in prayer as we Use a prayer again from Calvin to begin this lesson, this lecture. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as Thou not only invitest us continually by the voice of Thy gospel to seek Thee, but also offerest to us Thy Son as our mediator, through whom an access to Thee is open, that we may find Thee a propitious Father, O grant that relying on thy kind invitation, we may through life exercise ourselves in prayer. And as so many evils disturb us on all sides, and so many wants distress and oppress us, may we be led more earnestly to call on thee, and in the meanwhile be never wearied in this exercise of prayer, until having been heard by thee throughout life, we may at length be gathered to thine eternal kingdom where we shall enjoy that salvation which thou hast promised to us, and of which also thou daily testifiest to us by thy gospel. And be forever united to thine only begotten Son, of whom we are now members, that we may be partakers of all the blessings which he has obtained for us by his death. Amen. As I said, Calvin uh, treats uh, both person of Christ and work of Christ. Person of Christ, uh, 2, 12 through 14, work of Christ, 2, 15 through 17, and that will take us through the rest of book 2. But Calvin doesn't make a sharp distinction between person and work of Christ. It really isn't possible to do that. When you talk about the person of Christ, you have to talk to some extent about the work of Christ. When you talk about the work of Christ, you certainly have to talk about the person of Christ. But I think in general terms, we could say that Calvin maintains that distinction of person, chapters 12 through 14, and work in chapters 15 through 17. Now, the outline that we're going to follow then is this. Chapter 12, the mediator must be God and man. And then book 1, chapter 13 Christ is God. We've already studied that, but uh, 
we want to um, we want to review that, or at least note that Calvin has dealt with the deity of Christ in Book One, Chapter Thirteen. Christ is God. Book Two, Chapter Thirteen. Christ is man. It's easy to remember that because it's Chapter Thirteen, Book One, Chapter Thirteen, Book Two. Christ is God. Christ is man. And then chapter 14 of book 2, Christ is one person. So that is uh, the outline that we'll follow uh, today, beginning uh, with this. Christ had to become man in order to fulfill the office of mediator. 2.12. Book 2, chapter 12. Christ had to become man in order to fulfill the office of mediator. And I think we should note here, once again, Calvin's use of the concept of accommodation. Here it is not simply accommodation in words, but it is accommodation of God in himself as God becomes our mediator. And especially in the incarnation of Christ, he is mediator you know, Calvin says, before the Incarnation. We'll get into that in a few minutes. In fact, he's mediator from the very beginning in Calvin's understanding of um, the role of the second person of the Trinity as mediator after the creation of mankind. But especially in the Incarnation, and uh, Calvin quotes Irenaeus, the church father, in 264, Irenaeus writes that the Father himself infinite becomes finite in the Son. That's not that the first person becomes finite in the second person because the second person of the Trinity is also and remains infinite. We'll look at that. That's an important point that Calvin makes uh, later in his treatment of the person of Christ. But Irenaeus writes that the Father himself infinite becomes finite in Jesus Christ, in the Son, Jesus Christ, for he has accommodated himself to our little measure, lest our minds be overwhelmed by the immensity of his glory. So, the great God accommodates himself to us as he becomes, in the second person, man. The question then is, why did Christ become man? Remember when I lived in Jamaica, I was principal headmaster of Jamaica Bible College for five years, and the, the pastor of our church, uh, Earl Timms, Rhodes Scholar, Jamaican Rhodes Scholar, uh, wrote a Christmas song we would sing in our church there uh, the English and Irish Christmas carols, which often had something to say about cold weather and snow and ice and things like that, and the sun would be shining outside and it would be nice and warm. So those songs did not seem to quite fit our setting. And Earl Thames uh, wrote a song in Patois, the, the dialect of the Jamaican people, and um, set it to a calypso tune. So we had quite a 
indigenous Jamaican carol then, and it, it started this way, Jesus, Lord, what make you come down to we? Leave you home, come mix up with such as me. Well, that's another way of asking uh, Calvin's question. Why did Christ become man? Calvin says a number of things about this. He says, first of all, there is no simple or absolute necessity. That is, Christ would not have become man without the fall of mankind. There's no simple or absolute necessity. There was nothing inherent in Christ or the Trinity which would demand an incarnation. Now, the reason Calvin is concerned about this, you might think this is a kind of uh, obtuse point that he would not have to make, but there was a contemporary theologian by the name of Asiander, and uh, Asiander taught that the incarnation was a necessary part of creation. As soon as God made man, it was necessary then for God to become man. Calvin doesn't think uh, much of Asiander as a theologian, and uh, he will take him on here and other places uh, when he describes Asiander's view of a necessary incarnation. He uses this expression, such rubbish as this. <laughs> but he takes some time to deal with this rubbish, as he calls it. Calvin held that the purpose of the Incarnation was our redemption and nothing else. That was the reason God became man, to redeem us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 So there is no simple or absolute necessity, contra asiander, but, Calvin says, there is a conditional necessity. And he expresses this in a number of different ways. One way that he says it in 2.12.1 is that Christ's incarnation stem from a heavenly decree. So, even though there is not an absolute necessity, there is a necessity for Christ to become man because of God's decree. Now, it's important here, I think, to recognize that Calvin does not set uh, the Father against the Son. There's nothing in Calvin that uh, leads us to think that the Father is, say, justice and the Son is love. Sometimes in sermon illustrations or in sermons without illustrations, you can get that uh, idea that it's the father who is demanding justice and it's the son who suggests the solution. But uh, there's nothing like that in Calvin. There's the closest cooperation between the father and the son in the work of redemption. He says the Father's mercy made Christ's action possible. So the mercy is the mercy of the Trinity, the Father as well as the Son. And the Son ungrudgingly took our nature. So 
There is no tension within the Trinity on this issue. Calvin doesn't develop this heavenly decree into a covenant of redemption. We were talking about uh, covenant theology uh, last time. I said that some later covenant theologians have three covenants. Covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. I think you can find the ideas of covenant of redemption and covenant of works in Calvin, but not the language. Calvin never speaks of a covenant of works, nor does he speak of a covenant of redemption. But he does show the close harmony between the Father and the Son with the decree of God the Father in giving the elect to Christ and the work of God the Son who at the will of the Father redeems the elect. In a sense, you might say that's the substance of the later covenant of redemption. But uh, Calvin is very restrained in his, his treatment of this. If you look at some later writers, thinking particularly of Edward Fisher's The Mara of Modern Divinity, had a very great impact on Scotland, producing uh, the Marrow Men of Scotland, a good, a good development in Scottish theology. But uh, Edward Fisher's book, written in 1644, goes to quite a lot of detail even uh, establishing an imaginary conversation between the Father and the Son in eternity. Well, Calvin doesn't, of course, do anything like that, but uh, his, his point, I think, uh, could, could be extended into a covenant of redemption, although Calvin doesn't uh, use the word covenant to describe uh, what he's talking about here. Okay, what does he mean then by conditional necessity? Given the condition of our fallenness, the fact that we have sinned, we've fallen into sin, given that condition, if God wills to rescue us, it's necessary to do it through Christ as mediator. That's where the necessity comes in as far as Calvin is concerned. Because we're sinners, given that condition, then if God is going to redeem us, uh, this is the way uh, that he will do it, that he must do it. Calvin doesn't see a lot of, lot of options for God as some of the medieval theologians would, especially the late medieval nominalist, that God could have redeemed in any way. It's just God's choosing to redeem, and he could have done that as he did through Christ, or he could have done it some other way. But uh, for Calvin, uh, given the condition of our fallenness, uh, this is the only way. And it's the only way, Calvin says, uh, because of the nature of our condition as fallen people. But first of all, uh, Calvin makes a point that is a little bit startling perhaps the first time you look at it because he says as you remember from the reading even unfallen 
man needed a mediator. So there needed to be a mediator even before the fall. Not an incarnation, but a, a mediator. Because man was created finite. Here's how he puts it in 2.12.1. Even if man had remained free from all stain, his condition would have been too lowly for him to reach God without a mediator. So, unfallen Adam and Eve, finite, in a condition, perfect condition, but a finite condition, which would have meant that they were too lowly uh, to reach God without a mediator. I think we would call that mediation as sustenance. Let's call that mediation as sustenance. That's not uh, Calvin's term, but I think that uh, that helps to uh, set forth that idea that he's developing there. Even unfallen but finite man needed a mediator. So mediation as sustenance would be the work of the mediator upholding and ordering unfallen creation. There's a, there's a role there before the fall for the second person of the Trinity as mediator, sustaining, upholding that creation. Now, the Reformed tradition has held, has always held, uh, that the function that I've just described, sustaining of the creation, belonged to Christ, but uh, has not usually described this role as the role of the mediator. Generally, the Reformed tradition will reserve the word mediator for the work of Christ in relation to fallen humanity. But the role of Christ in sustaining creation is one that um, is clearly present in Reformed theology. This is how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it in chapter 7. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe their obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him. That's a word we don't generally use today, fruition, but it means any enjoyment of him or any use of him. We could not have any enjoyment uh, of God or any use of God as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So what the Westminster Divines call covenant here, covenant of works, uh, Calvin uh, calls the work of the mediator. Westminster Confession says unfallen man needed God's voluntary condescension. They call it covenant. Calvin says unfallen man needed a mediator. So even though the tradition doesn't follow Calvin in using the word mediator, I think the idea uh, is certainly there in the Reformed tradition. But if unfallen man and woman need 
a mediator, how much more fallen man. That's the next point that uh, Calvin makes. And here we come to mediation as reconciliation. Mediation as sustenance before the fall. Mediation as reconciliation after the fall. Before the fall, sustaining the creation. After the fall, recovering a rebellious creation. When Calvin gets uh, to this point, mediation as reconciliation, he speaks of mediation now in stages. Still haven't come to the incarnation, but Christ's work of mediation starts long before the incarnation, in fact, starts before the fall. But now, after the fall, the mediator is present in the Old Testament, as we've already seen, same mediator in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. Second person is present in various ways in the words of the promise, beginning with Genesis 3.15, under the signs and the ceremonies of the Old Covenant, the sacrifices and the various ceremonies, and in the presence of the angel of the Lord. Sometimes um, visible presence, but pre-incarnate visible presence of the angel of the Lord. This is how uh, Calvin puts it in 1.13.10. This is back in book one. That God's word or the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, already at that time as a sort of foretaste began to fulfill the office of mediator. For even though he was not yet clothed with flesh, he came down, so to speak, as an intermediary in order to approach believers more intimately. He's going to come down in the incarnation and become one of us, but he comes down, so to speak, even before the incarnation in these various ways that uh, I have outlined in the Old Testament to get closer to us, to approach the Old Testament believers more intimately. So there's the Old Testament role of the mediator. And then at the incarnation, he is manifest in the flesh. Calvin's favorite way of saying the person and work of Christ is simply to say the mediator. If you say the mediator for Calvin, you have included both the the person uh, and uh, the work of Christ. And so, because of the nature of our condition, first finite and then fallen, we need a mediator. And secondly, because of the requirements of our salvation. This is why we're talking about a conditional necessity here, because of the requirements of our salvation. We have a need, as we have seen in the first uh, five chapters of book two. We need to to be restored to God's grace. Our sin has come in through Adam and through our own 
embracing of that fallen nature, that original sin in our actual sins, and that has broken our relationship with God. We need to be restored to God's grace, and then God provides a way for us to be restored. We must pay the penalties for sin, Calvin says, but we can't. But Christ comes, manifest in the flesh, to pay the penalty that we had deserved because of the requirements of our salvation. Our sin, our need, the fact that we must pay, the fact that we can't pay, the fact that only God can pay, but man is required to pay, demands the God-man as the solution uh, to our dilemma. This is how Calvin puts it in 2.12.2. Who could have done this had not the selfsame Son of God become the Son of Man and had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was his to us and to make what was his by nature ours by grace? It has to be God. It has to be man to pay what we could not pay and to give to us uh, what we did not deserve. Or 2.12.3, another summary statement. In short, since neither as God alone could he feel death, nor as man alone could he overcome it, he coupled human nature with divine that to atone for sin he might submit the weakness of the one to death, and that wrestling with death by the power of the other nature, he might win victory for us. These are classic Anselmian statements. And Calvin insists that the mediator must be God and he must be man. That's why there is a conditional necessity. Given the fall, given our need, if God wills to redeem us. Now, this is the way that God must redeem us. We'll look at uh, Christ's work later when we come to uh, the next uh, lesson, uh, the death of Christ and what that means. We could talk about it here, but I think it fits a little better later on. So, that's... Point number one, Christ had to become man in order to fulfill the office of mediator. The second uh, point, Christ is God. And uh, that goes back to book one, so we won't return to that, but just to remind you that you find Calvin's treatment of the doctrine of the deity of Christ in book one. Uh, now in book Two, chapter 13, Christ is man. And then, after we discuss this, he is the God-man, but he is one person. Let's think about what uh, Calvin says now about uh, Christ as man. Uh, Calvin is very insistent here in the Institutes and everywhere in the commentaries that this means Christ is true man. 
true human person. There were people in antiquity and there were contemporary people to Calvin who denied this. Uh, the Manichees talked about the heavenly flesh of Christ. He had flesh, but it was not human flesh. It was not flesh like we have. It was heavenly flesh. Uh, the Marcionites and other forms of um, ancient Gnosticism uh, spoke about uh, the mere appearance of Christ. He looked like a man, but he wasn't. It was an appearance, not a reality. And some of the Anabaptists in Calvin's own day also denied the true humanness of Christ, including Menno Simons, the Dutch priest who became an Anabaptist after the debacle at uh, Münster in 1535, and the father of the Mennonites, Menno Simons, uh, taught that Christ took his body out of nothing, created out of nothing. It was a body, but it was a special body created out of nothing. The Mennonites, by the way, have not followed Menno Simons in that. The Mennonites today are quite orthodox in their view of the two natures of Christ. But against all of that, past heresy and contemporary heresy, uh, Calvin insisted that uh, Christ assumed our flesh. It was not a divinely created flesh, but human flesh like ours. So Christ was human in all respects like us. A sin, not finitude, accepted. He's like us in every way except without sin. But he is finite in his human body as we are. 2.13.1 A man truly begotten of human seed, subject to hunger, thirst, cold, and other infirmities, of our nature. And when you turn to the commentaries, it's pretty impressive how consistent Calvin is in this because he shows that Christ experiences emotional states, psychological conditions. Christ was sometimes frustrated, sometimes unhappy, sometimes lonely and so on, but uh, no sin in all of that. Let me just um, illustrate this in one uh, place from the commentaries, and uh, that is uh, John 11:33, where it says, He groaned in the Spirit. And uh, Calvin comments at some length on this. This is just prior to the raising of Lazarus uh, from the dead. Calvin says, But how do groaning and trouble of mind belong to the person of Christ? It seems absurd to some when we say that Christ as one among men was subject to human passion. And they think that the only way he sorrowed 
or rejoiced was by taking into himself those emotions when he thought fit by some secret dispensation. And uh, Calvin says this is the view of Augustine. He doesn't often disagree with Augustine, but he does sometimes, and here he does. Augustine said that that Christ simply uh, decided to take into himself uh, these feelings in order to make a point or illustrate something, but these were not uh, real feelings that would have marked uh, Christ because uh, to Augustine, it doesn't seem worthy to think of the second person of the Trinity groaning in spirit. But it will, says Calvin, to my mind, be more agreeable to Scripture if we make the simple statement that when the Son of God put on our flesh, he also of his own accord put on human feelings, so that he differed in nothing from his brethren, sin only excepted. This way we detract nothing from the glory of Christ when we say that he submitted uh, to this. When he became man, he became man. And that doesn't mean only flesh, but it also means uh, the emotional state of mankind. Uh, Calvin goes on. I won't read much more of this, but he goes on to say that Christ took our emotions into himself so that by his power we may subdue whatever is sinful in them. You see, if he doesn't really take our emotions, that's just something he voluntarily from time to time will bring into himself. But if they're not real emotions of his human nature, then uh, he is not uh, an example for us there because we're not like that. You know, we can't, we can't decide that we're going to be sad or we decide we're going to be glad or anything else. These things just come. We don't uh, decide that. Joel? I'm reading from his commentary on John 11.33. Uh, I don't have a page reference, uh, but uh, you, can, uh, you can find it, John 11.33, uh, the new uh, Torrance edition. You know, the commentaries, Calvin's commentaries, there is a complete set of the New Testament commentaries um, done fairly recently. And then there's the old set of all of Calvin's commentaries, Old Testament and New, that um, appear at good prices from time to time. But uh, it's really better to get the Torrance edition, the new um, translations, and then gradually new translations of the Old Testament commentaries are coming out too, although it's going to be years before those are, are complete. I have the Torrance edition for the New Testament and a good bit of the Old Testament in the old edition of the Calvin Translation Society, but the old translation is much more difficult, not because Calvin's Language was difficult, but because translators in the 19th century like to make things sound Victorian. So it doesn't really sound like Calvin should sound. Okay, true, true man, but sinless. 
man. Now, something important uh, to notice uh, here, and uh, that is that Christ was not sinless, according to Calvin, because of the virgin birth. Sometimes people have the idea that the reason Christ is sinless is that he did not have a human father. By the way, Calvin held what we consider a Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Calvin believed that Mary remained a virgin uh, throughout uh, the rest of her life. Uh, Most Protestants don't accept that. But he doesn't doesn't connect the sinlessness of Christ uh, to the virgin birth. The virgin birth is the source of an authentic, true humanity. He was born of a woman, and that's where his, his humanity came from. Not some special created flesh, but uh, born of Mary. Calvin insists that the virgin was not merely a channel through which Christ flowed. He was born of Mary. Why? Other people in this world are born of their mothers. The difference is he did not have an earthly father, but he was born of a woman. And Calvin insists against um, some people that would have differed with him on this that woman's seed must share in the act of generation. Woman is not just a a channel through which the child comes, so the male seed is the only important factor in the generation, but woman's seed and man's seed combine, as Calvin would have understood it, which means that since he was born of a woman, and the woman was sinful, because all women are sinners as well as all men, uh, then He is born of a sinner. And uh, we cannot then attribute his sinlessness to the virgin birth. Sinlessness of Christ is not due to the lack of a human father, but it's due to God's miracle. That's the major emphasis in 2.13.4. Christ is sinless because he was sanctified by the Spirit, that the generation might be pure and undefiled, as would have been true before Adam's fall. It was the work of the Spirit that guaranteed that Christ was born sinless, as people would have been born if anybody had been born before the fall. But the sinlessness of Christ is not to be attributed to virgin birth. The true, full humanity of Christ is to be attributed to the virgin birth. By the way, you probably noticed that Calvin is not politically correct, and I think not even biblically correct, when he makes certain statements here in chapter 13, when he speaks of the superiority of the male sex doesn't get that from the Bible. Uh, That comes uh, from his culture. 
just um, illustrate the point about the virgin birth from his commentary on Luke 135. I'll just read uh, a little bit of this. Thus, though Christ was born of the seed of Abraham, born of the seed of Abraham, because he was born of Mary, descendant of Abraham, he drew no contagion from that blemish nature. For from the very first, God's Spirit kept him pure, not merely that he should abound in holiness unto himself alone, but rather that he should make others holy. The very mode of his conception testifies that he was set apart from sinners to be our mediator. When Calvin says that last sentence, I don't think he means that the virgin birth made him sinless, but virginal conception, that's really the more accurate way to speak of it than virgin birth, virginal conception testifies to, but does not create, Christ's sinlessness. The miracle there at his birth testifies to something unusual happening. And the Spirit maintains his sinlessness, even though he is born of a sinful woman. Yes? Yes, that's right. You can find that um, in his treatment of the Apostles' Creed. But conceived by the Holy Spirit to him means it's the work of the Spirit. That could almost seem to imply something that Calvin doesn't want to imply, but it's the work of the Spirit. It's the miracle of the Spirit that... um, enables a virgin to bear. And it's the miracle of the Spirit that assures the sinlessness of Christ, not the virgin birth. But he does use that uh, language of the Apostles' Creed conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's, he's not uh, linking the deity of Christ um, to the virgin birth, and neither is he linking the sinlessness of Christ to the virgin birth. Just as it was one of the five fundamentals, um, the virgin birth. Yes. Um, and why is he, do you see that as a, as a fundamental? Did he differ with Calvin on that? No, I think uh, that, that became one of the five fundamentals in the early 20th century in American history. Uh, because it was often denied. It's a miracle that Calvin accepted. It's a fact that Calvin accepted. And if it isn't true, the Bible isn't true. So because liberals were denying the virgin birth, you can see how how people that are suspicious of uh, miracles would start with this one. This seems impossible. And so um, the so-called fundamentalists in the early 20th century 
said, because this is being denied, we will affirm it with the resurrection of Christ, uh, the other miracles of Christ, and uh, other uh, important uh, teachings that were being uh, denied. I think it was more to reassert the, the biblical nature of these teachings as facts against liberal interpretation than any sort of uh, theological implication. Uh, the, the reason that Christ is, is God is because the second person is God, and that second person is now united to real human flesh. The reason he's sinless is not because he did not have an earthly father. He had an earthly mother. And, you know, Mary does make a sacrifice later uh, of purification, which acknowledges her sinfulness. So sin can flow through one or two parents. But it doesn't in Christ's case, because the miracle of the Holy Spirit uh, shields him from sinfulness. And he is born then as a pure human being. Now, we get into something a little complex, if that's not complex enough, <laughs> and that is this. Christ is man, that is, true and sinless man, and at the same time, eternal God, united to, but not restricted to, the flesh need to look at a couple of passages here. Uh, 2.13.4. I'll actually turn to that and, and read it. Uh, 2.13.4. Okay, it's right at the end of um, chapter 13, right at the bottom of page 481 in our edition of the Institutes. Here it is, famous passage in Calvin. For even if the Word in His immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that He was confined therein. Here is something marvelous. Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that, without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. That is a view that uh, Calvin set forth. He also sets it forth in 4.17.30. You probably don't have your volume 2 here, but I'll read from volume 2. comes up again in his discussion of the Lord's Supper, as you would probably guess. This is top of page uh, 1403. There is a commonplace distinction of the schools to which I'm not ashamed to refer. 
That is, that means it's a, a medieval scholastic distinction. Calvin usually doesn't think much of these, but here he says he's not ashamed to refer to this. Although the whole Christ is everywhere, still the whole of that which is in him is not everywhere. And would that the schoolmen themselves had honestly weighed the force of this statement. For thus would the absurd fiction of Christ's carnal presence have been obviated. Therefore, since the whole Christ is everywhere, our mediator is ever-present with his own people and in the supper reveals himself in a special way, yet in such a way that the whole Christ is present but not in his wholeness. Okay, what's all that about? The Word of God becomes incarnate in Jesus, but not in such a way that he has no existence also beyond the flesh. Etiam extra carnem. Also beyond the flesh. That's, that's the key expression here. Which means that as Christ lived on earth, the second person of the Trinity existed fully in Christ, but also beyond the flesh. The, you might say the incarnation uh, was not the temporary abdication of the Lord's empire. He doesn't cease doing all the things that he had done before when he becomes man. There's a Christmas uh, hymn back in the 5th century, written in the 5th century, which goes this way, the word becomes incarnate and yet remains on high. So that expresses um, very much Calvin's idea. The word becomes incarnate and yet remains on high. There are plenty of places you can look beyond the institutes for this. The commentary on Luke 23, 43, John 14, 12, Acts 1, 11, Hebrews 1, 14. And the whole uh, Calvinist tradition follows Calvin in this as well. Let me illustrate that with the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 48. But are not the two natures in Christ separated from each other in this way if the humanity is not wherever the divinity is? Perhaps I should read um, 46 and 47. 46, how do you understand the words, he ascended into heaven? And then question 47, then is not Christ with us unto the end of the world as he promised us? If he ascended into heaven, is he not with us? The answer to 47 is Christ is true man and true God. As a man, he's no longer on earth but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he's never absent from us. And then 48, the crucial one. But are not the two natures in Christ separated from each other in this way if the humanity is not wherever the divinity is? The humanity, Calvin argues, and will against the Lutherans, 
in book four when he comes to the Lord's Supper that humanity is the right hand of the Father in that one place. But Christ is present with us in the Lord's Supper in his fullness and in his wholeness. So the catechism says, but are not the two natures in Christ separated from each other in this way if the humanity is not wherever the divinity is? Not at all. For since divinity is incomprehensible and everywhere present, it must follow that the divinity is indeed beyond the bounds of the humanity which it has assumed and is nonetheless ever in that humanity as well and remains personally united to it. It almost sounds like the Catechism and Calvin are saying, and they probably are, two things at once. The divinity is in Christ, fully in Christ, and united to the humanity in Christ. But at the same time, it also exists uh, beyond the flesh. Some people have seen this as um, the French scholar Vondel as a very important aspect of Calvin's thought and perhaps what is most original in it. I don't think it's original, although the Lutherans uh, viewed this as something specifically Calvin's. They called it the extra Calvinisticum. If you hear of the extra Calvinisticum, this is this is uh, what is being referred to. Calvin's expression is etiam extra carnum, also beyond the flesh. But uh, the Lutherans called it the extra Calvinisticum, which could be translated that, that extra Calvin thing, that idea of Calvin's, that extra Calvin thing. And so they said it was a Calvinistic idea that after the incarnation, the Son of God has his existence also beyond the flesh. But uh, David Willis's book, Calvin's Catholic Christology, the function of the so-called extra-Calvinisticum in Calvin's theology makes it pretty clear that uh, this is not something unique. Willis shows that uh, right through uh, Christian history, um, uh, this idea was embraced in the fact that uh, in Book 4, uh, Calvin says this is the distinction that's been made in the schools that I'm not ashamed to embrace, shows that there were others who were saying the same thing. Uh, in fact, uh, David Willis says it could be called the extra Catholicum or the extra patristicum rather than the extra Calvinisticum. That means um, the idea of um, the Catholic Church or the idea of the Church Fathers. In uh, reading uh, fairly recently, again, uh, the incarnation of the Word by the Greek Church Father Athanasius, the hero of Nicaea, came across these words. There is a paradox in this last statement which we must now examine. The last statement was that 
Christ banished death from us and made us anew, and invisible and imperceptible as in himself he is, he became visible through his works and revealed himself as the word of the Father, the ruler and king of the whole creation. And then Athanasius goes on to say there is a paradox in this last statement which we must now examine. The word was not hedged in by his body. Word in capital letters. The second person. The word was not hedged in by his body. Nor did his presence in the body prevent his being present elsewhere as well. When he moved his body... He did not cease also to direct the universe by his might and mind. No, the marvelous truth is that being the Word, so far from being contained in anything, he actually contained all things in himself. Yes. We need to come to the communication of the attributes, which is another point that uh, Calvin is going to make quite soon here, to understand these specific references uh, in relation uh, to this idea. But uh, let's just get the idea here, and um, we'll move on pretty quickly to that other point. Uh, Let's come to that then. Christ is one person. You might uh, think that what Calvin has just said would imply a kind of Nestorianism. And Calvin has been accused of Nestorianism, just like Lutherans have been accused of Eutychianism. But uh, Calvin will now assert that um, not two persons, but one person. Christ is one person. He who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. It's a Chalcedonian statement. Not by confusion of substance. The divinity and the humanity each retains its distinctive nature unimpaired. Now, we come to the question that's just been asked. How do we deal with various scriptures? And... There are four points that Calvin makes here. Scripture sometimes attributes to Christ what must be referred solely to his humanity. You see, he's human and divine, but he's one person. So, Scripture will attribute to the one person what we must see as belonging solely to his humanity. For instance... He increased in age and wisdom. Now, you can speak of the person of Christ, the one person of Christ, increasing in age and wisdom, but you realize that has to be applied to his humanity, not his divinity. The divine nature of Christ cannot increase in age and wisdom. And the fact that Christ says he did not know some things, that could not be attributed to his divinity 
because as divine, he is omniscient, could only be attributed to his humanity. So, human attributes are properly applied to Christ, to the person of Christ, because he's true man. And as true man, you could say, as Luke says, he increased in age and wisdom. Point number two, Scripture sometimes attributes to Christ what must be referred solely to his divinity. For instance, when Christ said, before Abraham was, I am. It's true of Christ, the person of Christ, but we cannot think of that as being applied to his humanity because that did not exist before Mary gave birth to him or conceived him. But it applies to his divinity as eternal son of God. He existed before Abraham. Divine qualities are properly applied to Christ because he is true God. And then Calvin says in the third place, Scripture sometimes describes what embraces both natures, but fits neither alone. And Calvin puts in this category uh, those things which apply uh, to the office of the mediator. That is, the mediator is both God and man. So when Scripture talks about... um, the work of Christ as our Redeemer on the cross, uh, that's God and man. It cannot be applied only to the humanity or only to the divinity. It must be applied both to the humanity and divinity in the one person of Christ. But then comes the communicating of the characteristics or the communicating of the idioms, as it's called in theological language. Scripture sometimes attributes to Christ's divinity what more properly belongs to his humanity, and so on. The way Calvin says it here is that the things that he carried out in his human nature are transferred improperly, although not without reason, to his divinity. Now, that's a surprising statement because Calvin is saying here are biblical statements which don't do it right. But there's a reason for it. Things that he carried out in his human nature are transferred improperly, although not without reason, to his divinity. Can you think of an example of this? Well, here's one. God purchased the church with his own blood. Now, can can God shed his blood? No. God doesn't shed his blood. This properly belongs to the human nature because only the human nature can shed blood. But it's the statement is applied to the person who is both God and man, and in this passage, this person is called God and not man. So, it's a true statement. God shed his own blood. 
but it doesn't mean that God has blood. It means that Christ, the God-man, who in his human nature shed his blood, is also God. So, that's a verbal, not an actual ontological communicating of attributes. In other words, the attribute of humanity is verbally assigned to, improperly, but not without a cause, the divine nature. But it's not an ontological shift. I mean, nothing real has happened there. Although what Calvin is expressing uh, is very real. The attribute of one nature, his own blood, is affirmed of the person of the person who is then named by his other nature, God. That's what we mean by the communication of the attributes. Okay, I'm going to have to uh, move on to complete this, so that's not clear. Meditate on it. <laughs> Christ is one person, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. The two natures constitute one Christ. The two natures remain distinct, but not in such a way as to constitute two persons. That's a great mystery. It seems to me Calvin is very true to Chalcedon. Chalcedon doesn't solve this issue remains a mystery how Christ can have two perfect natures and yet be one person Calvin does give a number of illustrations here it's rather curious to me that when he's talking about the Trinity he says don't try to illustrate it because you'll get it wrong but when he comes to the two natures of Christ, he ventures a couple of illustrations. Uh, maybe he felt he had some stronger illustrations here. But um, he sets forth in 2.14.1 the fact that man consists of body and soul. Each retains its own distinctive nature, yet there is one man. I'm body, I'm soul, but I'm not two people one person. And his commentary on 1 Timothy 3.16, he, that is God, appeared in a body. He uses the comparison of the two natures of Christ to the two eyes of man. Each eye can have its vision separately, but when we are looking at anything, our vision, which in itself is divided, joins up and unites in order to give itself as a whole to the object that is put before it. So you can think of, of those two illustrations. Not necessarily recommending that you use those in sermons, but at least uh, there's a possibility there, thinking about uh, how you can have two and yet one. Two natures, but one person. I want to show you uh, a chart which uh, I call the career of the mediator. Uh, this will help us to uh, review all of what Calvin is saying here. This is really a diagram of just uh, one section, uh, 2.14.3, uh, the, the career uh, of the uh, mediator. 
First, remember, there is the work of the mediator before the fall, but the one there that is sustenance, sustaining, unfallen creation. And then there is the role of the mediator as reconciler. First of all, in the Old Testament, number two, in the Old Testament, as Christ appears, the word of the promise, and uh, in the ceremonies, and at times as the angel of the Lord. The third stage in the career of the mediator is the incarnation, is earthly birth and life, ending in his death, resurrection, and ascension. The fourth stage in the career of the mediator is his session, which he sits at the right hand of the Father. That position, according to Calvin, that Christ has now is not the exalted position which, as eternal God, he never ceased to occupy the glory here. The second person has always had this role. So, also beyond the flesh, even now Christ is in heaven as a man in his flesh, but he exists as he has always existed, also beyond the flesh, just as he was made low, not for his own sake, but for ours, so he was exalted in his body, by which he entered heaven for us. The incarnation is no temporary episode in the life of the second person, but a permanent involvement in the human situation. But there is yet one further step in the career of the mediator, and that is the judgment. 2.14.3, when as partakers in heavenly glory, we shall see God as he is. Christ, having discharged the office of mediator, will cease to be the ambassador of his Father and will be satisfied with him, with that glory which he enjoyed before the creation of the world. That's just a, a diagram of uh, one section the career of the mediator. Evaluation of Calvin's Christology. Calvin speaks often of learned ignorance, careful use of biblical witness, but all before the mystery. He doesn't pretend to empty out the mystery here. Calvin's preference for the person, the incarnate person of Christ, is God manifest in the flesh. That's how he liked to express it. God manifests in the flesh. Constantly you'll see him do something like this. He who as man did such and such was at the same time the Son of God. So, 
he keeps together both the divinity and the humanity in one person, but there's no there's no shading over of the humanity into the divinity or the divinity into the humanity. The divinity remains divinity and the humanity remains humanity. For 1730, Christ did not suffer in his divinity, but the Christ who suffered in the flesh as an abject and despised man was also, as God, the Lord of glory. There is a stress on the distinction of the two natures. Calvin is not a Nestorian, and his stress on the two natures, I think, guards both the divine and the human. Right, next time we'll look at the the work of Christ. Um, That will not be Tuesday, but uh, next Thursday. So you have a little break, keep reading, and uh, maybe get a bit ahead. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. resourcesforlifeonline.com.